Growing with Fish. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Growing with Fish's podcast, episode 154. This week, we have Jay Grown. How's it going? Great, man. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, I first met him out in Vancouver, and uh, yeah, it was a good time. And uh, he's going to tell us all about some stuff that he's been up to and about his farm. He's a there's a lot of uh, very similar things, uh, you know, a big part of the regenerative movement. Um, and uh, there's a lot of similar things to a lot of the other people we've had on the show as far as regenerative soil growing. And he's going to share with us uh, what he does. So it's going to be an awesome, awesome talk. And then I think he's got uh, some other uh, other things to tell us about, too. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so uh, and we also have Roger. Roger had to run off for a minute. Um, I'm not sure everyone else is tonight. I guess everybody else is a little bit busy, but. Um, I'm sure they'll trickle in as they usually do. Um, <clears throat> and Roger had to run off. He'll be back in a few. So uh, so tell us a little about yourself and, uh, and what you do, buddy. Sure. Yeah, I'm the founder of Rosebud Cannabis Farms. We're uh, up and coming in BC, Canada. We've just got a confirmation today. We're, uh, we're passed through the next stage of our application process. So we're starting with a nursery, and then we'll be moving into outdoor production. And uh, phase three is a, a product line. Awesome. So, uh, so tell us uh, a little bit about your grow and, and what you do as far as how you go about uh, your, your methodologies. Yeah, we're, uh, we've got a lot of similarities to, uh, to your group. This is, it's great to be on this podcast, connect with a lot of sort of uh, like-minded people. It's a, it's a small circle, this regenerative cannabis community. So we're doing similar things. We're uh, using living soil systems. We're producing a lot of our own amendments on site, trying to reduce our carbon footprint and close loops. We're doing uh, water harvesting and water capturing. Uh, I'm a permaculturist and into regenerative agriculture. So we're incorporating a lot of those concepts into cannabis production. We're using geothermal heating and cooling. Uh, we tend to produce all of our own electricity on site, a combination of solar and uh, biomass units. And really the goal here is to be one of the uh, one of the lowest impact cannabis production sites in, in Canada. And that's, that's a, a huge a huge thing when you consider how much energy it takes on average to, to produce cannabis. And we've been looking at some statistics here. Uh, as an example, for one kilogram of cannabis in an indoor warehouse production is equivalent to seven to 10 barrels of oil for the energy it takes to actually produce that. So it's not sustainable. And we're trying to demonstrate a, a better way. Better way mean uh, more profitable, uh, better for the environment and potentially a better product. So really, it's, it's a win-win-win. We're happy to be able to demonstrate that as we transition into these better, better growing methods as time goes on. So what are some of the different organic amendments that you make for your garden? I know a lot of people are interested in kind of what their toolbox is, and uh, what are some of the things that you use, or maybe uh, and, and tell us about that. Sure, we're trying to move away from uh, purchased amendments and, and actually produce more on site. So alfalfa is a real big one. We do some bioaccumulators, uh, you know, um, nettles, of course, is really popular, confrey. Uh, we do some vermi composting on site. Uh, wood chips, we're using wood to actually create electricity, waste wood from the lumber industry. That's our intention anyway. And so we're, um, we're composting wood on site as well. And, and then that in turn does some carbon capturing to, to push us towards carbon neutral or uh, eventually, hopefully, carbon negative. Awesome. Uh, is there any other amendments that you're using? Or? Yeah, we're doing, we're doing cover crops. You know, clover is really popular. Uh, we're mixing it up, trying to use some uh, 
some attractants and some polyculture kind of stuff like you'd see in uh, in a guild. Um, we're trying to use rice hull. We don't like to use perlite. I think it takes a lot of energy to produce and it's not really sustainable. So we use rice hull for the most part for our aeration to help give us some better aggregate in our soils. And really we're trying to source things locally as much as possible and make sure that uh, it's organic. You know, glyphosate is a real big issue these days. So we're really taking big steps to make sure we can keep that off of our, off of our property. So uh, you live um, up in the Kootenays part of, of Canada. Tell us a little about the, the culture and the history of that uh, as far as cannabis goes up there, because it's been part of the culture up there a long time, like it is in some parts of the United States. Yeah, it sure has. We've actually only been in the Kootenays for about 10 years now, but uh, the locals have been really welcoming. Uh, it's, it seems like uh, definitely the epicenter of cannabis production in Canada, so we got a lot in common. Um, it really is ingrained into the into the Kootenays. You know, I remember when I first got there, um, I was talking to some strangers, people I'd never met before, and they started to unload plants out of their truck and just move them into the house. And from that time, I was from Alberta, and it, it just blew my mind that it was it was so open and accepted there. That was my first real awakening to uh, the cannabis in the Kootenays and how how it's different. I. Uh... I was lucky enough to have my first exposure view of, of, of the dragonflies, so I'm a little bit spoiled on my exposure to the Kootenays, but, uh, but yeah, it's a really wonderful state. Tell us a little bit about the climate there compared to the rest of Canada. You were in this desert belt, the same desert belt that goes up into the Okanagan, so we get pretty mild winters. We do get a lot of snow in the winter, but quite mild compared to uh, a lot of the rest of Canada and really hot, dry, sunny summers. So I think this is the reason that... Um, you know, the, the Kootenai cannabis is recognized or BC bud is recognized internationally is, is that great climate that we have. It's a good altitude, similar to that of Colorado, where we have a less atmosphere. So that way we can get a little more strength out of the sun, a little more energy. So, yeah, it really, it really does grow high quality outdoor cannabis. And that was, that was what brought us to the area. That was a big attractor for us. We're focused on sun grown and outdoor production. What are some of the different cultivars you're finding work good up in the, uh, in Canada? Um, I know with um, the shorter season, especially, uh, you need to use stuff that kind of hurries the hell up once it gets into flower. So what are some of the stuff that you're growing and then maybe some other ways that you're handling that? Exactly, yeah. The first, uh, the first cannabis I ever saw, the first cultivar that made me think outdoors is a strong possibility was actually seaweed. And seaweed has been in the Kootenays for a long time. I mean, I'm sure it's been the uh, the bulk of outdoor production in the Kootenays for a long time. For years, it was passing off as indoor, although it was growing outdoors in the rest of Canada anyway. And so people have started to catch on now. But but that really showed me the potential of outdoor. And that started me down this path of incorporating ruderellus or autoflower genetics. So in my opinion, there is a ruderellus in seaweed. It's hard to keep a mom. It wants to flower. You got to keep transplanting it, keep the nitrogen high. Um, and then it moved on to some other local strains. Polecat's one that does really well in the area. Um, recently, Apricot Kush has become really popular. We've really been working on our own genetics uh, for the past decade, really focused on outdoor production in Canada. Uh, knowing the Health Canada tests are so strict, I think that we're going to see a lot, of, a lot of failed crops here in the future. And so picking the cultivars that are resistant to pathogens 
that are going to help us pass those tests has been very high on the list. And also knowing a lot of this outdoor product is going to go to extraction. So we started to look at it from, from that viewpoint. You know, for example, it's not necessarily the amount of THC per the gram or per the bud. It's more about uh, total cannabinoids per foot. When you start looking at extraction, you start looking at outdoor field production. And then, like you said, early finishers is key. You know, autoflowers, a lot of potential in that. We can maybe get two, potentially three harvests off per season. Uh, really, right now, we've got a couple strains that are September finishers. And we're really excited about, really excited about moving forward with. What's the, what's the latest date? What, do you, what date do you have to have everything in by up there? Um, you know, honestly, you can get into the, the end of June and, and still be fine. Uh, we like to start planting at the end of May. Uh, you could probably even sneak into the first week of July and, and still have a, a successful harvest. But we do get we do get short season. November first, the snow comes like clockwork every year, and uh, that's the end of it. October is pretty wet, pretty cold. It's not ideal. Uh, September is still pretty good. If you can finish off in September, we're definitely finding a better quality product for sure. Uh, so what are uh, maybe some things that you do that are a little uh, unique or maybe things that you've learned on, uh, um, you know, along your path or things that you've discovered that work really well in your particular area? Well, that's a good question. We don't have the, we don't have the humidity that we get on the coastal region. So we're a little less impacted by powdery mildew and, and botrytis and things like that. Um, rusted mites or hemp mites, a big problem. Um, I know uh, Josh and Kelly talk about this as well, but uh, we've had a bad infestation. And of course, we, we deal with it with uh, biological. So we use um, predator mites to deal with that. But I've seen it pretty much every garden I've gone to recently through my circle of friends that everybody has the, the same symptoms. So it's a real outbreak right now, a real problem. And people are trying to find out ways to, uh, to deal with that. What, uh, uh, what species are you using? For the New York. Yeah, we're using um, Swarovski. Swarovski. We're using those uh, foil sachets as well. So we get about five, six, six weeks life out of them. We have to replace them. They seem to work really well if you can get them on your babies uh, right from the start. You know, if you, if you already have a problem and try and add them later, they seem to work, but it's difficult to keep it under control at that point. So it's more about prevention and getting on it early, really. Um, so uh, we had a question from Chat. Where are you getting your bugs from? Uh, right now, we're using Optimized Organic, although we've, uh, we've gone a couple of different routes in the past. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, we, we were talking about that the other. Steve was talking about how he's, he's introduced mites into his grow that, that the predator mites will, will eat and continue to have a food source. The other we, night. Didn't, we didn't introduce them intentionally. They just ended up there. <laughs> nice. That's yeah, the ultimate have... goal, right? To establish a colony, to have them reproduce. Yeah, we have uh, triphagus mites in our nursery, which are feeding because we <clears throat> we do so much IMO and so much labs in our system. Uh, and uh, we have some mushroom block in there. So we end up with like this, you know, immense amount of fungal activity in our soil in our upper half of our root zone in the dual root zone pots, and uh, the triphagus mites have been feeding on those. But we noticed the hyperaspid or the H miles or I, what did they change it to? Is it Neosuilus miles now, or is it 
No, it's not Neosoilus. What is it? What's the new Hyperaspis miles? The new one is a strep Stratiolepthes miles, maybe. I'm sure if, if uh, Suzanne's listening to this, she's cringing. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but uh, somebody in chat, help me out here. Come on. Yeah, I haven't checked out chat. Let me close up. Let me talk and keep up with chat. That's all right. Um. <laughs> We're using uh, Californicus for our two-spotted mites, and, and that's awesome. Uh, it's nice to not have to worry about two-spotted mites anymore. I don't know if you guys are like me, but I've dealt with these things for a long, long time on and off. It's nice to be able to uh, not worry about that anymore. Yeah, Californicus and Persimilis are really, really, really good for two-spotted spider mites. Yeah. Like the best. Um, I know that we're going to be putting out Persimilis and um, Andrasonii and... Oh, what the hell? There's a third one that we got. I don't remember. I'll have to go look at the sheet um, that we're going to be putting out all in our outdoor. And then we're going to be putting in um, the Andrasonia and all of our, all of our babies. Right. So, although I guess uh, Suzanne's changed her mind on some of that, I guess more recently on, on which one's the best one. So hopefully we'll get her on here soon and she can, uh, she can correct us on that. It's an interesting space to be in. There's, there's so much uh, evolving. We're learning so much about living soils and predators and this whole regenerative cannabis thing. It's, uh, it's exciting. There's lots to learn every day, something new. Absolutely. Um, so what are, um, is there anything else um, that you guys have noticed in particular um, in your, uh, as far as, you know, are there any other uh, cultivars that are anything patterns and cultivars that you've noticed uh, as far as what what grows really well at that you know particular climate yeah you know just uh, we're trying to work with stuff that's been acclimatized it's been in this area for a number of years uh, if not we're trying to find things that that are already well suited um, that are already acclimatized from another region that's similar I guess you could say I think that's really important we see uh, a lot of issues when we take genetics from different regions most of the time it's it's going to at least take some adapting a couple of years for it to acclimatize and do well in our region so i think there's definitely a lot of value to to picking genetics that are from from your region or something at least similar especially if you if you want something to be uh, to produce well your first time around awesome so uh so tell us about some of the other stuff you got going on up there we got a lot going on. We're uh, reaching out to the community. We're doing a little um, cannabis event. Uh, at this point, it's going to be private because there isn't permitting in place to make this a public event. But we have been talking to the regional district and beyond, and we hope next year that there is uh, there is a path to do that. Uh, so this year, it's just going to be relatively small, kind of a friends, family invite to only maybe uh, about 150 people. But the idea is actually... Uh, a cannabis celebration. Part of that being a comparison. Some people will call that a cannabis cup. Um, but beyond that, we want to actually make it an educational event where people can come and learn about uh, living soil systems, regenerative cannabis, uh, and uh, a way to produce with, with less impact. You know, as, as I mentioned earlier, I think that we're at that point now when it's a win-win-win. We can actually produce the same or more a quantity of potentially better quality 
for a fraction of the price. And I think that speaks to everybody um, from the mom and pop operations all the way up to, to the big corporations. It's just starting to really make sense. And so we want to demonstrate that. We want to spread that word. Um, yeah, and just a celebration of cannabis period, especially we've moved into this, this new place of legalization. And I think that uh, it's being accepted more by the common folk and, and they're looking to understand uh, more about cannabis and cannabis production as well. So we hope we hope we can uh, present a venue for for a good cannabis time and uh, some education as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm gonna uh, trying to make trying to make my way up there. I think I'm gonna be at that one. So barring awesome. anything crazy happening, uh, I'll be up there. Awesome. Well, we're excited to have you. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. Uh, go up to see you. It gives me an excuse to go up to Dragonfly's farm. You know. The end of the summer and see their amazing place see see your squad and see uh all kinds of awesome stuff up there so it'll be a, be a good time for sure yeah excellent that's why i decided i've got to get out of here and i got to get at least in the midwest or somewhere where i can go i'm so sick of all my friends going to all these great conferences and meeting with all my other friends every month <laughs> well you're invited too roger we hope you see you up here yeah. Oh man, I you know if I could well I got to get one of them cards that that get me past the uh, Patriot Act type shit. I I let my license expire because I'm legally blind and and due to that they won't let me into the DMV to get an ID which would allow me to get the kind of ID that would allow me to fly. So when we went to Michigan we had to post we had to cancel the plane tickets and drive up there. You know, so so it's a long drive from me to you. It's a really long drive but one day, I don't know, I got this really awesome camper. Maybe we'll get some friends and make a West Coast. We'll just do a trip cross-country and visit everybody we know all the way across. You know, because I don't have anybody to answer to. You know, I get my disability check and my my pay from my online, you know, activities. And uh, and I could go anywhere in the country and still get paid. So, yeah. Or in Canada or, or anywhere in North America. Let's see. Excellent. Cool. So, um, so what are... Uh, uh, is there any other people that are going to be talking there? Is there any other info you want to share with that yet or just kind of in the, the early stages? Yeah, we haven't, we haven't nailed anything down. We're in talks with a lot of different people. Some of them, uh, some of them, you know, of, uh, in fact, uh, maybe you're one of the speakers. We'll see how that goes. See if you're interested. But, but again, the idea is just to educate people on, on, on a more sustainable growing practices. So everybody in that, in that community with knowledge uh, would be a candidate to, to come and talk. We like to do a seed exchange. Uh, we're going to uh, do a, a pig roast and have some entertainment there, and uh, really just try and make it, like I say, a real celebration of cannabis and a lot of like-minded people at the same place. A lot of networking and, and connections going on, uh, especially next year. Like I say, private this year, but we got big plans as time goes on to uh, to have a premier regenerative cannabis style style event. Sorry about that uh, noise there. I think we got it. That sounds incredible there. That that does sounds like a real thing. Up in that area, if you're up there close to Josh and Kelly, that I saw some of the pictures from that. And yeah, I want to go up there and hang out with them too. You know, so yeah. Cool. Cool. I could have a month vacation up there in, in Vancouver or you know, British Columbia for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we're pretty pretty unique piece of property too. We're at the end of a dead end road. Uh, beautiful little lake up there surrounded by crown land, mountains and wildlife. We got loons and painted turtles and eagles and all that stuff you know so we're uh to tell you the truth every day i wake up out there is a, a day i have something to be grateful about 
are you lucky? Do you have any flowing water, like streams or small river through the property, or just on the lake? Yeah, we have. We actually have a few properties up there. Um, we have a year-round spring that runs through the center of one of them. Our long-term plans with that property are actually a sort of an eco-community type thing. Yeah, and that'll that'll house some of the employees for our cannabis production as well. You know, it fits along the uh, the whole theme. The whole theme we're trying to put forward is low impact, um, low carbon footprint, people traveling to work and then uh, producing our own food as much as possible and sort of things like that. This sort of closed loop, closed loop way of looking at things. Yeah, they, there was a place like that. Well, see, I'm big into the, the running water thing. I, You know, if I found a piece of land out there, I'd have to have a stream or something because I really want to try using in uh, hydropower. And that's why I asked about that, the, the idea that you could use hydropower because you got like Steve and them have that out on that farm in Oklahoma. They actually have a place there where there is running water, you know, where you could produce hydropower. And that's what I've really been wanting to do for 20 years. But the community, we, there's one in North Carolina. I cannot think of what it's called right now, but it's the same kind of deal. Everybody has to live in like a 10 by 20 house, you know, or like very small footprint houses. Um, and there it's all self-sustainable and they have their own Everybody works for the community and they have a, a, a like a deal. All the where you eat is a main, like a hall. They have all in the center of the community. So all cooking and eating is done in there. So you don't need a kitchen in your cabin. Yeah. It's really cool. I love that kind of idea. Cool. Love that. Um, so, uh, so what are some of the other uh, things that make the, you know, grow scene up there unique? What are the, some of the different processing that you're doing? Uh, or, or, uh, and, and how do you uh, go about maybe drying and curing your stuff uh, before you process it? Well, I guess it depends what we're going to end up using it for. Um, you know, the drying and curing, I think, is probably the same that all you guys do is uh, low and slow. Uh, cool temperatures and, and nice and slow gives you the, the better terpene profile in the end, right? So um, we do a lot of, we do a lot of ice water extracts for personal use. We're running a MMAR license since 2013 for several patients on our neighboring property. And so we do a lot of ice water extract on that. You know, I love personally, I love the fresh frozen. I love the, the taste that we get out of that and the flavors. And of course the clean product, generally speaking, a lot of melt factor going on. So that's one of my favorite. We stay away from the hydrocarbons. It doesn't really fit into, uh, to our niche so much. Um, if we're looking for like a, a shatter type product, that's going to come from rosin. Uh, in fact, our rosin, we like to actually make bubble hash and then squish that into rosin. You know, you're not going to quite get as much out of it, but in my <laughs> opinion, you're getting a premium quality. That's what uh, Steve likes to do, man. Like right on. Yeah, he does the hash. He makes the hash, then squeezes the hash to make his rosin. Or at least that's what he was doing for a while. There's no telling with Steve. Yep. He probably figured out some new space age way to make it better. Or if he right. working on, always working on stuff for sure. But uh, <laughs> you know, still, like I think nothing really beats that quick, you know, quick wash, freeze dry. Especially if you have a freeze dryer, freeze dry it overnight, squish it the next day. Man, it's just it tastes so good. Yeah. Especially if you just cut the plant down and immediately bubble it. Like, don't even give it a chance to, you know, just to cut it down immediately, ice hash it. You know, take those trikes off and, and make that live rosin. Yeah, so good. Yeah, exactly. That's my favorite. You know, when it comes to flour, my little my little trick, and it's not like I'm the only person doing this, but one of my favorite things to do is is pick my favorite plant, put it into a cold, dark closet right in the pot. You know, so the pot's probably going to be pretty close to dry. I might even be starting to wilt the plant a little bit, but then just shove that in a dark, cool closet in the basement, 
and come back, you know, six weeks later kind of thing, let it, let it die real slow. It seems to really sweat out the crystal trying to hold in the moisture as a defense mechanism. And then along with the, keeping the roots intact, you know, that's some of the best, some of the best cured flower that, uh, that we've ever done. That's, that's my favorite way to do personal. Wow. So you don't even hang it. You just put it dry, let it dry out in a dark, cold closet. Yeah, right in the right in the living soil. If it's in a pot, you just uh, move the whole thing into the dark, cool closet. You know, if it, if the pot is too wet, it's gonna in our in you know our experience, it takes too long for the plant to die and dry. So I yeah. like to get it in there. You know, when the pot's pretty dry, drier than <coughs> you would normally get it for sure. So a day or two later, it's starting to wilt and wilt and die. Uh, but like I say, it just seems to take way longer to get to that to the ideal humidity which is like instead of two weeks or whatever it is we're looking more like four or six kind of thing interesting i like that i've i've tried that before and i've never gone been committed to do it like you're doing it there and now i can see a, how there might be a difference but every time i've had a plant that i let slowly you know die in the pot it seemed to have a taste that just a little too earthy for my for my, you know, my taste, you know, or, you know, so, but I can see how that, but you, so you basically almost water, basically water stress it before you put it in the, in the cold, dark room is what you're saying. So that's, yeah. Sure. A lot of people out there are going to be interested in that. That's pretty neat. We, um, we had, uh, some stuff in chat it says, um, how do you guys find temperature being an issue for bubble, have a temperature you won't go above when processing? Um, actually, a lot of people I know, uh, and, and if I have the option, I'll do this. Generally, you're, you're taking your plants down in October or November in most of the U.S. Not everywhere, but most of the U.S. Um, and, uh, and, and by then, you're going to take them down. You're probably going to dry them for two to four weeks. So that's going to move you into November, December. Generally, it's pretty cold out by then. So you can either you know, hit up your backyard on a nice, cool, dry day, on a cold, dry day, or you can go in your garage on a nice, cold, dry day. And, and, you know, just, just do your thing out there in, in anywhere between 32 and, you know, 33 degrees and, and 55 degrees, I would say, is, is ideal. The colder it is, the better it's going to be and the less sticky it's going to be. So if you have the option, you know, if you're going to build a lab to do this kind of stuff, you're going to you're going to have that lab around 40, 45 degrees uh, for the space. You're going to do bubble hash on any kind of large scale. Um, but again, you're going to get a, an extra little percentage of, of you know, yield that way. Yeah, right on. That's what we do too. I mean, we're so busy in the fall that uh, we end up getting the bubble hash done in the winter anyway. So we just set up out in the backyard in the snow and the ice and and uh, <laughs> paddle away. Yep, that's the, the easier way to do it. Um, so, uh, and then we have um, speed of drying versus early picking, early trichome development, amber percentage. That entirely depends on what it is you're trying to do with that product. Yep. Um, if you're trying to make like really showy rosin, you're going to pick that early. If you're going to try and get higher CBD percentage, you're going to pick it way early. Um, we, Wade Laughter was talking about up to two weeks early, yep. uh, you know, uh, for peak, you know, two, one to two weeks earlier for, for peak CBD. So, you know, this really depends. Now, if you want a really clear uh, solvent or really, or not solvent, a really clear extract or something like that, or really blonde, again, pick early. If you don't care and, and you want a more rounded off one, you'll pick it a 50-50 or a 40-60 one way or the other. Mm -hmm. you know, and the, but remember that CBN is red and it's going to darken up your, your stuff as well as some other cannabinoids. 
uh, you know, Delta Eight, I believe, also is a darker color just by default. So, um, you know, just because something's darker doesn't mean it's bad. You know, it's one thing that really frustrates me when you hear people talk about extracts. Is is you know, oh, it needs to be clear. It needs to be blonde. Really, why? Because you don't understand what how, what how this whole system works, or because you've heard that and it's hype right now. No, it's yeah. just stupid. For sure, yeah. Baggy peels seem to be uh, the number one concern these days. Uh, which is a shame. You see some of these, what we call ugly looking land race strains come down and you see that on Instagram. People say, oh, why, why do you post a picture of that swag? But the truth is, if you were to smoke that, <laughs> quote unquote, it'd knock you on your ass. So it's definitely not all about looks, right? We, well, we like we, to, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought you were done. All right. Well, I'm just thinking back to bubble hash. Like personally, I like it nice and greasy, nice and oily. So we get to know the different cultivars and, and when the the most oil is present and try and pick it at that point. Yeah. We had vision creator on a couple of weeks ago and he's into all he does is land races. He doesn't do anything else. And he talks about how ugly the plant is, but then you smoke it and you trip your ass off. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And he literally means you're tripping your ass off too. He doesn't mean Especially some other Southeast Asian strains yeah, the yeah. and stuff like that. They get real fluffy uh, and they don't really get that, you know, stereotypical nug structure but they smoke really good yeah yeah i think it's important to keep your intended use in mind as well like some of this outdoor stuff we're actually uh we're actually selecting open bud structure which is against the norm at this point um when it comes down to it, we're getting less infection less pathogen that way and we're able to still get a high amount of extraction per square foot so you know, it doesn't really necessarily matter of how it looks. It matters is uh, your intention and, and the end product and how it works for that. That's pretty neat. That comes up. You know, that's funny how things keep coming up from different people, how everybody's adapting and they're kind of find, finding a, a medium, a middle ground on all of this stuff that is uh, is making better quality for everybody. Because like you said, like Steve said, I understand I've seen a lot of that too, where people are talking about the more clear, like, especially going back to when people were preaching, doing the honey oil with the butane, you know, and they were talking about, and if you want clear, you got to do this, but you don't really get clear. It's just, you're not, you're taking the, you're using buds to make that honey oil. That was, that was light. That was golden or whatever. It wasn't necessarily younger or anything. You're just not using the leaves as opposed to using trim or whatever to make the less potent stuff, but still very good medicine. You know, but I think that's where that belief came from was the old days of, well, you know, they were looking at the quality of the honey oil and it had to do with that really was whether you're using buds or whether you're using trim, you know. With I think a lot of it, a lot of it just comes from that company, the clear or whatever, hyping the shit out of it. And people, oh, well. and then this distillate companies pushing it because it's like one of the cheapest, low, lowest quality products that's out there. You, know, you can make it out of pesticide ridden stuff. I mean, Mike. We had Mike West on a couple of weeks ago talking about that. Um, and so they just tried to hype it up so, to try and give it some more value, even though it's kind of not really worth the same as the other one. So I think that's where a lot of it comes from. It's a I guess I have an ignorance to that because I'm not in a place where I haven't been able to practice all these things. Because if they saw you with any kind of rig like that, it'd be like they'd think you're cooking meth no matter what you said. So I stay away from doing any kind of uh, extractions or anything that looks like you're doing a lab you know if they want to come get me for growing a couple pot plants in my room then that's what they can do and that's going to be minimal effect of my life but they come in and see any kind of lab situation 
you're going to have you're going to spend a fortune just to prove to them that it's not a meth lab, you know, because they're they're as ignorant as you know the next. I mean, there's some smart guys in law enforcement, but they're you know your guys on the ground are just about as ignorant as it comes when it comes to that kind of because they're not studying this this um you know in the industry and what goes on with it. And so I'm glad I'm kind of ignorant to that clear and all that stuff and really have gotten to learn how to do things from old school organic people, you know, as opposed to relying on buying something, whether it's cheap or not, I'm not interested. I want to find out how to do it myself in a in the simplest way, which is why I love the fresh frozen and all that, like you're talking about the fresh frozen, all that's, that's probably as far as I'd go in trying to do any kind of extracting or any kind of squishing or anything like that. I, I don't even want to press rosin yet, yet because we're so far behind the, 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 the uh, line as far as uh, legality goes, you know, so sure yeah yeah even things like for example topicals uh we're finding there's no need to extract it with the hydrocarbon and then add it back that seems to be the norm we're actually having better success with using stuff like uh, organic coconut base and decarbing at the same time as we simmer our flour or our trim in that to extract it yeah you read my mind coconut oil yeah yeah good squeeze after with some cheesecloth to get the, the last little bits out of there and it works great it's clean it's not dangerous it's healthy uh, it, it seems to be a win-win. Yeah, especially for topicals, when you're doing your infusion in the coconut oil, put it in mason jars and pressure cook it. And you put a little lecithin and a little emu oil in there too, and it'll it'll really get it through that skin. Oh, right on. Yeah, good good one. You can take the lecithin after you've done the coconut oil. You take the lecithin and you get one of those milkshake or like mayonnaise, your Dremels. You know, I don't know what the little mixers you stick in the top and you can make mayonnaise and you mix yes. the lecithin and whip it all up and it it makes it way stronger more mic microbial microbiologically mic microbiologically available to you to you yourselves oh interesting interesting that's in that's good anyway hey tara just to say hi tara dropped in one more hi tara Good evening, everyone. I was out in the garden doing my garden chores. It's still light here, so it's. I'm like, it's hard to make this thing at six thirty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Come live on the East Coast, and then it's nine thirty. Well, when the, and, it, and finally, like the you know the sun finally starts to cool off, right? Like I don't want to be out there every day. Yeah. So, well, good evening. How are y'all doing tonight? How's everybody doing? Great, thanks. Great. It's been a fun, fun show. Yeah, very informative so far. Awesome. Do you know Che? Che's from um, Rosebud Farms up in Van in Br British Columbia. Yeah, we met up at the uh, Regenerative oh, Conference cool. in, uh, in Vancouver. All right, so we're all on the same page, and so now we can do what everybody wants to do. It's so do you, do you do any uh, KNF stuff or any fermented uh, amendments or anything like that? You know what? That's where we're headed right now. I don't, but, uh, well, I do a little bit, but we got a lot to learn. And uh, that's really our focal point at this point. We see big advantages. We see it working, but we just haven't uh, haven't explored it deep enough to incorporate it yet. But it's coming. It's coming for sure. It's not as scary as it seems either. And I've talked to people that don't follow the direction, so to speak, and they're using it. So I've got real, I've been doing a few methods. Um, I've been making some labs and some fermented plant juice and I got my OHN and I'm in the process of doing my IMO, but it's not as scary as it seems to be. And I feel it's really safe because I've talked to people when they recommend one to 1000 
and they're going, well, I'm doing it like one to 20 or one to 50. And they didn't kill their plants. They thought they still got um, good effects from it, which, you know, I, I want to stay closer to the benchmark when I'm beginning to do something. I want to stay with what the masters teach and then maybe change it later as I might think. And he, even Steve's got enough experience with it now where he has made some changes for certain aspects or certain situations where you would make it stronger. But the fact that I know somebody that made it extremely strong, like super extreme strong, and it didn't kill anything. And again, I think it goes back to the plant only uptakes what it wants to uptake. And since it's an organic, you know, so what I consider a safe organic, um, um, uh, what am I looking, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's applied, you know, uh, the way it's applied, I think it's a very safe way to do it. So it's not as scary and pretty. And so, you know, with the labs of fermented plant juice, it's so easy to make and so quick that you can actually implement that and get a, I've had everybody I've had that use labs and fermented plant juice just alone without anything else. So they saw marked advantages in their plants in a, within a week or so, you know, so, yeah. you know, it's yeah, pretty we, cool. We, we do play with it to tell you the truth. We do sort of uh, controlled studies, I guess you could say. I like to make lots of mistakes, but just keep them small. It's an opportunity to learn. And then uh, you didn't have a big loss, you know, so, so we're playing a little bit with fermented. I've been playing with the fermented teas for a long time. Yeah. And uh, it's amazing how well the plants respond to something that's, uh, that's so anaerobic. I know Josh and Kelly are big into anaerobic and then go aerobic. For the most part, our teas, uh, we stay aerobic. But obviously, obviously, it works very well to do both or, and even uh, anaerobic. So we've got a lot to learn. We've been playing with Bokashi a little bit. Uh, we seem to have some good results with it. We're just not at the point yet where we're confident enough to, to move it into the full production. But see, right. Well, that's smart. That's smart. Yeah. You don't want to try something new when you got something working. You definitely don't want to try something new and it could possibly not go right for you. And on a quick note, one thing about Chris Trump, he's always said to all of us and he says in his videos, if you if you do something or his, any of the Korean natural farming methods and you fail, send him a send him an email. You know, right. and tell him what you did, and he'll try to figure out what maybe what happened and give you some advice. You know, he's, yeah, he's good about that kind of thing. If you're, he's always looking for because it's like you said, you have to fail. You know, if you always do it just perfectly and you don't ever experiment, you don't really know what happens. You know, it's if you don't try it a different way, and then you can see the how it hurts it or it helps it. But you know, either way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The IMO is something we're definitely interested in. It doesn't make sense to keep adding uh, microorganisms that aren't indigenous because then you just have to keep adding them. But at the same time, we're seeing some incredible effects happening with um, specific combinations of microorganisms. You know, um, some com companies up there doing some research right now that are having some big results. And so we're looking for, uh, we're looking for ways to repeat that with uh, more of the indigenous microorganism side of things, but uh, we're just not quite there yet, but we're definitely looking forward to, to getting to that point. Cool. Awesome. Um, so is there any other, uh, I guess, uh, topics you wanted to bring up in regards to cannabis or cannabis growing? I'll kind of give, uh, give you the floor to talk about anything you're kind of passionate about or think we, you're concerned about in the industry. Well, to tell you the truth, in our community up in the Kootenays here, it's, it's so ingrained into the culture, into the, into the community. It's pretty sad to see a lot of people losing that opportunity, and that's what's happening, unfortunately. Um, it's quite difficult to get into the regulated system. There's a lot of hoops to jump. 
the application process is difficult. It's quite costly, uh, limited footprint. We're looking at 2,000 square feet for a micro-grow. And with the prices the way they are, by the time you, time you actually accomplish that and have product for sale, it can be difficult to even be profitable, especially if we're talking about high-energy indoor-type production. It just doesn't seem to be, to be a, a good choice. It doesn't seem to make sense. And so what we're seeing is a lot of these mom-and-pop operations shut their doors. And that's sad. That really affects uh, our whole community. You know, in the Kootenays, uh, I can't give you the exact number, but a, a huge portion of the funding that moves around in the Kootenays is, is cash that's come from cannabis production traditionally or in the past. So to see that change, it's pretty sad. And then uh, outdoor prices have dropped, so I've heard from you know 2000 a pound at one point down to a few hundred dollars i mean i've heard pounds going for 400 dollars at, at this point so people aren't bothering to do it anymore you know why would they why would they jeopardize themselves uh, potentially incarceration and theft and all the other issues that come with it on the on the gray market for uh, to break even or to hope to break even so really seeing things change i hope that uh, i hope the government lacks up a little bit and relaxes some of these regulations and makes it easier for these smaller cultivators to to be involved we definitely intend to uh, support the community if we can but it's going to take the government uh, making it a little bit easier for for us to be able to do that weren't they planning on making it laxing uh, making the, the regulations more lax progressively in canada wasn't that part of the plan they're, they're really kind of tough now but they they have already said they're going to uh, ease up a little bit on certain restrictions down the road yeah, I hope so. I mean, one quote I can think of is uh, Bill Blair said, you know, we can't start with less rules and add more later. We have to start with lots of rules and then it's easier to take rules off. So I hope so. I hope that's what we're going to see. In fact, I hope we see that uh, everybody that has surplus is able to sell that through through uh, a legal route one way or another, whether that's personal production licenses, MMAR licenses or micro growers. Um, you know, really at the end of the day, this is this is a plant, right? And I think it's easy to overlook that, uh, especially with the stigma that's been attached for so long. That's uh, the devil's lettuce and reefer madness. Uh, at the end of the day, why is this any different than a tomato or, or any other plant? So I think sometime down the future, we're going to see that. But I have a feeling uh, it's going to be a slow, slow progress. Yeah, I know. Uh, applied for a license up there in Alberta you know, last may i think it was so and we're still in process so uh, i'm sure you applied around the same time or earlier yeah we applied in uh, in march and we just got our confirmation today that we've been to pass the uh, high level review so uh, the system's changed actually up here uh, in the past you apply we're looking at 12 to 18 months till your application comes back and you make amendments to it. You have your building built at this point. Now, actually, uh, we were grandfathered in. We got in before this change happened, thankfully for us. But uh, now you have to actually have your facility completely built before you can even apply. And so the reasoning behind that is there's a backlog of applications. I guess there's over 700 applications, and the majority of those never actually build a building. But in fact, they just look to sell their application. The government decided that this would be the, the best way to deal with that issue. Uh, I'm not going to comment one way or another if I think it's better or not. But at the end of the day, it's easy to see that it makes it even more difficult for the small guys to move into this space 
it's hard enough to get funding for a project, but even that much harder if you can't put an application in first. Yeah, I know it's been really wild uh, being through that. I know uh, a lot of small farms, you know, how would you, you know, you'd be sitting there waiting for your license and not even know if you should plant your, you know, for the season, you know, and you could end up taking off a season and cost you your farm, you know, yeah. and I'm sure it is for people um, you know, sitting here still waiting on a license. So, you know, they need to just issue temporary permits and then do the whole licensing process, not force everyone to wait and cause this kind of crazy bullshit. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, that, that's what a sane market would do is get the market going put testing regimens in and then go through and say, Hey, you know, we're going to issue final permits, but you know, we'll issue the temporaries for now. So, but they don't do that because, and Canada's completely screwed itself out of the international market. Canada really was set up in the beginning and could have been the international marketplace for cannabis. And they've done nothing but try to screw that up every way, every chance they can. I mean, look at how completely asinine the edibles restrictions are. You know, and the concentrate, 10 milligrams per package, completely ridiculous. And, you know, that that's totally unreasonable. Like, like what's a cancer patient supposed to do? You know, just get, get cases? Like, they're going to buy it by the pallet? Like, what the Yeah, and I, I really think ignorance is to blame for that. Ignorance meaning just not educated, just not knowing any better. So as these rule makers start to, start to use themselves and, and understand really what it takes... Um, I think we're going to see those those change, you know, but, but like I say, there's a lot of people that haven't really um, moved into cannabis or, or dabbled with it yet. And as they're starting to educate themselves, then I think we'll see the rules reflect that. What well, seems like the problem, like what you're talking about, I think the m biggest problem of it is, is even though all these people have applied and they're all professional growers and they know they're professional growers, they never include them in implementing any of these regulations or using the common sense between a farmer and the government, they're not. There's no liaison. There's no nobody in the middle expediting this to in order to make it reasonable and smart and and economical for everybody. It's just a bunch of guys that are 65 to 75 years old making laws that never smoked a, pot, a joint in their life, you know, and they never farmed in their life, much less smoke a joint. I should say because they're not farmers, you know, they're not. They're not even, you know, consulting farmers because it's cannabis. So they don't even look at regular farmers to consult, which is they look at how they screwed up all the farmers all over the place. And they're doing the same thing with cannabis growers. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's true. You know, there's definitely a lot of issues uh, in cannabis all over getting better all the time. But at the end of the day, I think it's easy to forget that we are making some progress, that cannabis is legal here. And that's a, that's a huge milestone. That's something to be super thankful and appreciated about. You know, as time goes on, we can we can fine tune it. But uh, I think I think sometimes myself included, it's easy to get focused on the issues and how they could have done it better and then forget really that such a, a milestone has happened that, that it actually is legal now. I mean, that's huge. We've been dreaming about this for our whole lives. My old man always used to tell me one day cannabis will be legal. And I think, you know, Pops, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. So it's a happy day. For sure. For sure. Despite, and I say this a lot, a, a lot of people, and no, no offense to all my friends, because I'm trying to get in the industry myself now because it's, it's, uh, it's out so much out there. But I tell people at my age, we haven't been looking to make a million dollars off of cannabis our whole life. 
I'm in my 60s. We've been looking to be able to have it legal so we could grow it and smoke it. And so sometimes when I hear people that got in it, you know, I, I feel I have empathy for anybody that got into business that's not working out. But that's like any business. Everybody wants to open a restaurant, but 80% of those fail in the first year, you know, and that's the same thing I think happening with the cannabis industry. Steve and I talk about it all the time. There's so many people, the reason there's so many good jobs out there, because there's so many people that have the money to start a cannabis farm, but they have no clue of what to do on a cannabis farm. Once they get the red, once they spend all their money and have their licenses and all in order and their, 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 uh, you know, greenhouses or whatever, you know, set up. You know, there's they they have no idea of standard operating procedure and and other things that you have to do and and have to think forward on. You know? For sure, for sure. The biggest thing I think that, that people overlook is uh, these prices aren't going to hold forever, and we have an advantage. We can look what's happening down where you guys are, south of the border, and use that model to predict that's going to happen here. I mean, it's just the way it plays out. Uh, and what's happening is a race to the bottom at this point. So how how do you be competitive when you're production prices are through the roof. So we're still seeing the majority of these operations that are applying uh, as indoor, high intensity, high energy consumption facilities, which means high production costs. And uh, it's just not, a, in my opinion, a, a plan for longevity. So I think that's, that's the biggest problem with a lot of these setups and, and why they're not going to be successful uh, looking, looking long term. I was thinking that same thing and you actually hit it on the head. You're actually going there already. You said, you you know, some people that are having to, the price of their pounds are down to $400. So they're closing their doors. Well, we already have friends in Washington. Well, we have one particular good friend of the show, Josh, that has the, the cannabis conference. Yeah. Him and Leighton have the regenerative organic cannabis conference. Mm-hmm. And they, He's got the same problem. He had a thousand pounds and he couldn't sell them because it's no, you know, it was down to like two to four hundred dollars a pound, six hundred dollars a pound. You know, that's not what he grew it for. You know, he didn't grow it for that. The price in California has gone up quite a bit. How's it going up in Cali? So yeah, it's actually stabilizing in Cali and Oregon. But again, summer's coming around, so that's also partially normal for the season and also partially because the you know they're the biggest thing in my opinion is just consumer education people know the difference between good and bad weed now uh, they're not really you know overjoyed about just having a 40 dollar ounce of weed and they're actually going out and you're looking for something that's good or the specific terpene or cannabinoid profile that they want and they're that, and that's allowing their you know room for the cottage industry to kind of you know get the prices back up a little bit because they're the only ones really catering to that market and also once once it does settle dust settles a bit there's always going to be craft growers that grow better and you're going to get more money for your product if, if you've got the you've got the best quality you know cannabis or whatever you whatever you uh, extract from it on the market you're going to get the extra money eventually the uh the low the uh, low quality will be weeded out it'll be sold cheaply because it's just like it always been really you buy low you know like I, I was alive when you could get a pound for 200 bucks, 250 bucks, you know, I mean, but that was killer, you know, and you sold it for 30, 30, $35 an ounce, you know, you buy a quarter, bought a quarter pound for a hundred bucks, 110 bucks. You know, the whole thing was you sell three quarters for 35 and you get one for free, you know, then all of a sudden overnight, all of a sudden, bam, what's this? A, a cellophane, a hermetically sealed cellophane package with a, a quarter ounce of one bud in there. And it was like sensimilia. 
that was $35. All of a sudden you went from an ounce for 35 to this one bud for 35. And then we went to where we got to where we were at 2000 a pound. And it just, the market changed, legalization changed a lot of stuff because it flooded the market with so many people growing and all. And we knew that was going to happen. But just like you said, even if you're not a commercial grower, at some point, even home growers are going to, you know, because you have to, you have to pay attention. You know, there's some people that are going to get into growing that are going to quit growing eventually too. Even though they're growing now, they're not going to grow forever because it's actually work. You know, we all know that a lot of people don't like to work. So. I think you're going to see that like in Oklahoma, everyone panicking because of the number of licenses issued. But first off, I would say at least 20 to 25% of the people that have a license are not even going to get a harvest that's sellable. Like, I, like botrytis and powdery mildew is, is rampant out here because of the flooding. The humidity level here has been high for you know a month and a half like literally a, like just rain or you know i have pools of water around the house there were the the river near our house went from being normally long enough you could probably swim across it in a normal you know in, in a minute or two um you know wide but but not that wide to being oh you know two or three miles wide um so you know just the humidity is is, is just you know radical um so and something that you have to, uh, you know, a lot of these people aren't prepared for. You know, they're, they're not familiar with growing cannabis. They went, they bought those hype strains. They have, you know, and a lot of those hype strains are super inbred. They're, they're not mold resistant, you know, and, and you're bringing them into a climate that they're not used to. And, and like I've seen it over and over. I got people sending me pictures that are in Oklahoma asking me what to do. And, and the plants are covered in PM. They're totally, totally way too far gone or have botrytis. I went into a grow the other day and the guy had a bunch of huge nugs all over. And I was like, this whole room is trash. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? And I grabbed the nug and I broke it in half and I showed him and the whole middle was just fucking like brown. You know what I mean? And it was just like, you, you know, this this whole thing is, is just, you know, I think a lot of people, yes, there's a ton of production but a lot of people straight up are not even going to get to harvest. And I think a lot of people are also going to be growing really bad quality stuff. Or, or I think you're going to get a lot of stuff that's not flushed. I think you're going to get that because people don't know they're supposed to do that. I mean, just really basic grow stuff. I, I, there was a guy who called me the other day. His plants are seven feet tall and five gallon pots and, and, and he hasn't flipped them yet. Like, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just stuff where like, um, you know, you have people that are, are farmers, for sure. And I'm not doubting their ability to grow plants. I'm sure they grow amazing vegetables. But these people don't know cannabis. And if you don't know cannabis, you can completely ruin a really great plant or have be an amazing grower and still get horrible powdery mildew or, or whatever because you don't know the, you know, you're not hitting them with labs or you're not hitting them with, you know, Bactillus subtilis or something else that's going to, you know, consume that that you could still you know, get back off the plant later on come test time. And thankfully, they don't really have any strict testing regimens. I think that's going to end up changing in August. Uh, they must actually start testing stuff. But uh, uh, right now, we're one of the only dispensaries in the state, um, a kind alternative down in uh, uh, Glenpool, Oklahoma. Um, if you mention DGC or, or uh, Growing With Fishes podcast, you get 5% off down there. Um, so uh, uh, here in Oklahoma or in Tulsa, definitely uh, do that. But, um, uh, you know, we... We're only carrying, you know, probably 5% or less of the stuff that we even people bring us because most of it's just bad. And that's stuff that's being sell, sold to other places for two grand. You know, they're buying it for two grand a pound, 1800 a pound on the, on the lowest end. So 
but it's swag. You know, stuff that wouldn't you wouldn't be able to put it on a shelf anywhere in Colorado or California. Like we bought some Blue Dream the other day that was just no flavor, looked like it was cured in the sun, <laughs> and, and and it was just one of those are like, this was the best looking one they had. <laughs> Well, going back to the disease and stuff, some of that with the rain and the flooding is just bad luck for some of those people. But you did get to what I was going to kind of push you towards is you have that dispensary. And I think we've been talking about you've been turning down 80, 90 percent of everything offered to you because it wasn't quality enough. And, you know, and a lot of that, some of that had to do with the with the storms and all. But so, uh, most of it had to do with the the. The ignorance to how what you have to actually do to to grow that high quality cannabis that you can market, you know. And I yeah, hate yeah. to call anybody ignorant, but that's an easy way to describe it. You know? The lack yeah. of experience, lack of experience is a really big issue here too. We're seeing uh, really poor quality cannabis come out of these uh, large production facilities, and that's what the common folk are, are getting into the space or going into these stores and buying. It's just not up to par, so they end up, you know, inevitably back on on the black market, but. It's a poor quality, and that's directly related to a lack of experience, you know, uh, what you guys are talking about. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, it's a big problem. And uh, it's funny, like, if, you're, if you know what you're doing, it's pretty easy to be successful in Oklahoma. But, you know, everyone that's actually successful is from out of state, it seems like, <laughs> or has employees that are from out of state. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. So that is different than what Jay experiencing up in British Columbia, where he's actually got people that were good growers, but they just because of the glut of you know the oversaturation of, of product, they're they're starting to have that same issue like they did in Washington, you know, in California. And I guess I never know heard much about what's going on in Colorado. They seem to still be thriving pretty well over there, but I'm not sure. But I do know, you know, we all know our friends on the West Coast have been suffering for a while now. Yep. <laughs> That's why I left the West Coast. <laughs> uh, we had a question from chat. It says, what's the best preventative medicine for PM or botrytis? Um, the best way for aquaponics specifically is to make sure your silica levels up. Your silica plays a huge role in the immune system response of the plant in terms of preventing that PM and botrytis from getting established in the first place. And if it, your silica levels are too low, uh, or at least your bioavailable silica levels, you will not get proper a gene expression on that immune system, and it'll, you'll actually make the plant significantly more um, weaker to, to PM and botrytis and fusarium and all the other nasty shit that you don't want to get that's, that's fungally related. Um, yeah. And I'm in gonna, general, oh, go ahead, Shay, go ahead. I'm just going to say that, that was a great answer. I'm going to even go like a, a step before that and say uh, pick cultivars that have proven to be resistant to powdery mildew kind of yeah. get Get more of the base of the problem instead of treating it after absolutely and sometimes you can even find phenomes within a cultivar that are a little a little less you know a little more resistant than others i know we've we've had a couple of warlock um one of the early strains i worked heavily with doing aquaponic cannabis research is called warlock and it took us probably three different phenomes to find one that actually you know really enjoyed being in aquaponics that they wouldn't get pm but um, if you actually, I uh, suspect you have a little, little tiny spot of it, you can actually take um, um, a, um, what's it called, uh, lactobacillus from it. You can spray it with that. You can also use uh, Bactillus subtilis. Um, you know, you can serenade or you can buy chicken probiotic. Use, they sell it as chicken probiotic for chicks. 
it's the same same stuff it works really well it just consumes fungal spores you know so um, it's also another one that you can use that's you know safe and you can get organic or non-organic certified and kind of any all right, question. Chicken organic or chicken probiotic? What is that? Yeah, so the Rectilis subtilis is sold in a powdered form for chicken probiotics, for mainly for the treatment of pasty butt and a couple of other, um, I don't know the scientific name, but it's basically used to keep, they put it in water for chicks, but they don't get sick. Uh, is it only for the little ones? They, 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 people do use it for adults as well, but it's, it's primarily used for the young ones. Only if they're like sick, right? Something. Like no, no, no. You use it off the bat. So if you have chicks, you oh. would use it in your water to, to prevent disease issues in the digestive tract. It's a, it's a proactive yes. method, Tara. So very similar oh. to using lactobacillus. Oh, so, yeah. you know. very interesting. Never even heard of it. And I have chickens. <laughs> you can, there's a product you can buy over the counter called Serenade that's actually sold for, for use on plants. It smells like the a boy's locker room from a high school but it, it, it works really well and i wanted to add to what steve said about silica for those of you aren't totally familiar or haven't gotten into knf yet fermented plant use is high and say so, you know if you're using it if you're using the right plants you'll get you'll, you'll get silica from your fermented plant juice yeah so that's a little bit proactive uh, method and input you can use from natural farming yeah horsetail horsetail is really good for silica yeah yep i got some growing out in the front i got some uh, singing nettles out there but i did dandelions because I, I like the candy you know when awesome. i when i'm done i get to eat the candy another, yeah. little, uh, another little tip that, that we like to do during the breeding process is that we actually keep powdery mildew and botrytis uh, in our freezer and we'll introduce that to our mother plant our seeded plant and we'll let the plant uh, actually build up a resistance to that naturally. You know, it's, it's kind of looking at natural systems and how we build up an immunity. So we're actually introducing to our, our breeding projects the pathogens that we're trying to uh, trying to resist against. Can you explain how you're doing that, or is that a secret? Sure. Yeah. We just uh, when the when the plant's going into flower, we'll we'll literally rub an infected piece of uh, of bud from another another project some botrytis or powdery mildew will actually try and infect the plant with it oh, i thought we lost you you first second. your head froze you know, first, like, oh there we go there we go. <laughs> yeah, we're having a pretty bad lightning and, and hailstorm here it's you might be able to hear it in the background so after you rub it on there and try to actually in infect the plant, uh, what is your what do you do then? What is your pro what are your operate your procedure after that? Just just let it run through till the seeds are done. I mean, we're trying to develop oh, resistance. Oh, Think okay. of it as a as a um, as we would take an injection. Um, what's that called? Flu, flu shot. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Okay, so that's what oh, the whole point is to to do it while you're while you're growing the seeds to allow it to be in the you know the for the plant to be infected by it. It'll put it in the seeds and thus make it supposedly make it. You know, um, yeah, yeah. The plant uh, will start developing resistance yeah. to it, especially after a few generations. You do that a few generations, uh, it's usually successful. That's interesting. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, the other one I like a lot, aside from silica or horsetail, if you're going to do ferments uh, specifically for those, is um, uh, fermented rice husks. That's another really good one, uh, specifically. 
Yeah, that's another advantage to using the rice hull as we set up perlite in our soil. As it breaks down, there's definitely a ton of silica in it. Oh, yeah. For sure. I'm was working there? towards, uh, well, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I, I was working towards that, but I, I've always bought my, my perlite that's 440 pounds at a time, and I still got about 350 pounds of it, but I hadn't really been using it because I'm going into the, the regenerative. And I've had friends that have been doing it a long time advise me against using the perlite because it settles. And then you end up with this perlite uh, layer across the bottom of your grow you know which is not is is harder to penetrate i at least that's kind of i think that's how it was explained to me so yeah, i like that rice house gotta see how much i can get them for there's nothing worse than going to a house and the whole yard is just full of perlite because they've been recycler dumping their soil between crops outside and you got three feet of perlite on the whole property you know that's another advantage of us reusing our soils And I'm trying to shift from ProMix, too, for the same reasoning, shifting from ProMix to uh, cocoa is so expensive to me compared to ProMix. But at least with the, all my ProMix that I use, I always recycle it. So uh, the biggest hit on ProMix is that taking the peat bogs and ruining peat bogs. But since I've been using it for so long, at least I'm not wasting it. Like, I'm not just throwing it out. I'm going to build a culture using that. You know, when I grow plants in it, then I, then I can dunk, dump, dump it in my hugel beds or whatever you know and reuse it as a as part of the you know the the structure there so i know steve wanted to say something i keep jumping in but we got such a live conversation going on it's cool no it's all good i was just gonna say uh does anybody have anything else they wanted to uh to shave any other questions from chat There was one question back up I saw. Wait a minute. It was about runoff. PPM runoff. Did you already get that one? I'm sorry. I don't what should, talking what about. should PPM runoff be if feeding 1,200 PPM during flower? I have no idea. Not, not my apple. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't answer that. <laughs> Can you repeat? Can you repeat the question? Because we talk about runoff all the time at, at our website. What? If, if he's feeding at twelve hundred ppm's in flour, what should his runoff be? Oh well, that's not. That's going to be that. You can't necessarily answer that. It's going to be. It depends on what you got in your pot. That'll cause it to change on the way through in the pH. Yeah, that's kind of a really complicated question. Yeah, so there's more things we need to know to answer that. So. I, I will say one thing about people using runoff to judge. I feel like it's being misused in a lot of ways. I don't. I think people. I, I talked to a guy the other day. He goes, "Well, I flushed my I flushed my pots last week, and then I did this, and he's not even giving. He's he's giving them way too low of nutrients. Then he flushed his nutrients, and he's giving them like 200 parts per million. He's wondering why he's having having um um deficiencies, and then he was going to plan on flush his pot again. And I said. Why are you doing that? The only time, here's my opinion, and I could be wrong, but this is my opinion for all my years of growing. I do not use testing runoff unless I'm having a problem. I let my plants tell me if I need to do a flush, that I need to measure the PPM or the pH of the runoff, and I let the plant tell me that. I, if my plants look healthy, the last thing I want to do is flush all the minerals out of the pot 
And that's what too many people are getting into. Every time they want it, they think they're supposed to do a runoff check, you know, by flushing their medium over and over and over. And that's where your problems are coming at. That's my opinion. Maybe somebody else would like to address that. I, uh, I guess his battery died or something. Um, he is uh, Che Grown on, uh, and just in case he doesn't come back, so we had that problem with uh, Ben Ripster last week. Um, he, his, his phone just overheated and he needed a lot of cool down. So um, uh, Che can be found at Che Grown at um, uh, Instagram. There we go. Hey, guys. Well, hey, in case you cut off again, how do we find you? That's what Steve was explaining. Easier for you to do it. Sure, sure. Yeah, you can get me at Che at Rosebud Cannabis Farms. Uh, che Growing on Instagram and uh, Rosebud Cannabis Farms on, on all the different social media platforms. Uh, check out our, our website, rosebudcannabisfarms.ca. Cool. That's cool. Yeah. We didn't know if you'd be back because you said you were having a storm, pretty good storm out there too. And that, that could do it. Yeah. That could do it. All well, right. Um, uh, so think, uh, we have uh, uh, one or two questions left. What, is there any other strains you recommend for the Okanagan or Kootenays? Seaweed. Seaweed's old faithful. You know, um, everybody knows about it by now, but it's just tri-tested and true. Uh, Polecat, it's a real late finisher, but it's super resistant, super hardy to frost and cold. In fact, most people don't harvest it until it gets hit by snow on the 1st of November. Uh, again, the apricot kush, it's really starting to take over a lot of the outdoor production. It's, uh, it's got really nice golf ball buds, really nice apricot kush taste going on. So that's become really popular. And then our genetics, we're working on a, an ice cream haze, which is a, what we call semi-auto. It's got ruderellus incorporated into it, a September finisher. We've also got... A, a chem 91 auto crossed with uh rosetta stone from duke diamond and that's that's turning out amazing uh the male is one of the nicest males i've actually ever seen for a uh, plant structure the the flower pods were, were so tight on it from a distance it looks like big coals it looks like a female and you get up close and you realize no those are actually male flowers uh it's turning out really well as well we're excited about a lot of the projects we're working with but those two are right at right at the forefront Right. That's pretty cool about the, well, I've seen pictures of that where there's been snow on floods before, you know, and it didn't appear that they were panicking, but they had, they, they knew that it was time, you know, so to have something yeah, resistant right. like that, I bet the Michigan growers and the main growers would love to know about those strains. I'm going to have to re watch this later on and make sure I get the names of those to pass on to some of friends up north and in the East Coast, you know. Up yeah, there's, up there's some East. other ones, you know, BC Blueberry. Is a pretty good one. We're incorporating that, but again, uh, all these strains, you know, for the most part, have ruderellus in them, and that's how we're able to get them finished before the before the harsh winter comes up here. So, did you breed those yourself with the ruderellus, or did you pick it? Well, I know some of them you didn't because you just said they're from this place or that place. But how many did you make your own, or are you just now making your own? You know, from we've been breeding for a long time. You know, my father had a lot of genetics you know, 30, 40 years ago, he was working with. And so we've built some stuff off of that. But to tell you the truth, for the most part, it's a big advantage to take somebody's already, you know, um, successful project and then continue that forward. I mean, we're, we don't want to rip anybody off. We want to get far enough away from the original that it, it can be called our own. But it sure saves a lot of time. And there's so many breeders out there now. 
you get these really exceptional things popping up and uh, it's a big advantage to, to start with that instead of from scratch. But some of our older stuff, we've uh, actually incorporated some auto flower into seaweed about 10 years ago. Um, but most of this modern stuff is just uh, four or five steps removed from other readers' work. And then we've uh, added our own little, little flair to it. Mephisto, if you're into auto flower, uh, they're really top notch, in my opinion. They're leading the auto flower movement at this point. I'd highly recommend checking them out. Yeah, there's a couple, three people out there. Jeff Lowenfels are getting into it heavy. And, um, oh, shoot, what was that younger fella we had on that's big time in the auto flowers that had to, where, yeah. where Josh went, Josh went and did a show with him a couple weeks ago. But, uh, Shango. Shango, I could, yeah, Shango. Yeah, yeah he does autos. And then um, uh, Jeff Lowenfels is actually going to be on the show here soon to talk to us about that. So. Cool. Yeah, I just heard him on uh, Tad Hussey on Kiss Organics talking about the autoflower thing. Completely agree. You know, there's there's other advantages to autoflower too. You can harvest in succession instead of that big workload at the end of the season. Um, you're also your first harvest is really high quality, probably comparable to indoor. And of course, you're going to get quicker to money. You're going to be able to uh, reap some rewards earlier in the summer before the market's flooded. So there are a lot of advantages to to working with autoflower. I think the key to autoflower, in my experience, is that it needs to be sun-grown. Indoors, to me, it just, from in my experience, I just quit growing it indoors. You know, I have no use for it indoors. It takes up space where I can get much Maybe higher yield. Nice. But everybody I've seen that did it outdoors, I could say, okay, I could be happy with that plant, you know. But I've never got one to finish in under 110 days either. They have all these claims about 90 days and well, I harvest by trichomes generally, and I've never had one anywhere near ready at 90 days. But so it, it's basically, I found it to me, for me indoors, it was the same amount of time, almost. I have, you know. I have an auto in Jamaica called 47. A lot of the guys grow up in Orange Hill, and uh, that one finishes in around 50 days. Wow. Well, that's, yeah, and that's where your, your photo oh, wow. period is more like 12-12, though. Natural photo period with the sun is 12-12 there. So that's another thing. The shorter photo periods like growing. Right. Yeah. We're getting some of this stuff to finish in uh, 70 days under 24 hours. What? That must be strong Ruderella traits. Then. I don't know. I, I disagree with doing 24 hour personally. I think there's certain yeah. I, I, I'd love to see someone do a comparison of chemo bars with like a dozen strains. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know you. It's kind of yeah, well, there's some autos though because you can't take clones. Yeah. Well, I've had people take clones. Go ahead, Jay. Go ahead, but because it was addressed to you anyway. So yeah. Oh, no problem. I'm cutting in and out a little bit, but uh, there's some advantages I think to 24-hour light as well. Like for example, you you have a lot less intensive lighting, so which opens up that possibility to to people that want to grow with the you know LED strips and things like that and actually have a really high quality harvest, you're still getting the total amount of, uh, of uh, intake, light intake over that period, even with a half or less of the, of the light. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I, I hadn't heard that point before. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, so what's going on uh, with your grow this week? Sorry, you talking to me, Steve? Yeah, what's been going on with your grow this week? Uh, we're just doing a lot of transplanting. Uh, we got a lot of company stuff going on. 
in Calgary and I'm just headed back home to the, the Kootenays tomorrow, but we're, uh, we're a little bit behind. We'd like to be transplanted normally by now. So we got a lot of that going on. And then we're taking clones off of everything, numbered clones so that we can sex them and also pick our keepers. We're going to do some feminized work. And so we're going to pick the, uh, the best females of the, of the batch to use as our donor plants. And the way we find that is by uh, cloning them numbered clones and flowering out the clones. In fact, we even root the clones in 12 and 12. So it doesn't take long at all to, to know what you got. Awesome. Yeah, I know. It's, it's definitely something I like to do too is rooting in, in 12, 12. One thing I had was going to say a minute ago was I've had friends that we say you can't clone autos. And they did, but we still believe that, you know, the plant's going to be at the end and eventually it's going to, the, the, the quality is going to continue to deteriorate. But they did clone successfully, you know, so there were, they wanted to argue about that. So I didn't, basically, I just said there's still the, the uh, clone is the, we all know the clone is the age of the mother, uh, genetically the same age as the mother. So if, a, if it's predisposed to grow for 90 days, if you take a clone, and you take another clone from that, we think that it's going to eventually deteriorate to where, yeah, and I don't think they got the yield off the clones, but so you can, if anybody wants to argue out there, you can actually take cutting yeah. and they will root and grow, but it's not advised. It's going to take the age of the parent material the same way a fruit tree does, and it's just going to finish right away and it's not going to grow. Kind of yeah, that's been our experience with it. Yeah. Have you heard about this tissue culture though? How uh, now? I can't confirm this. This has just been presented to me. We're on a phone call next week about this, but how we can uh, actually reset the internal clock of the of the autoflower cultivar by putting it into a tissue culture. Um, have you heard anything about that? No, and I, I I just I kind of lost interest with tissue culture when I learned how uh, how in, how easy it is to culture viruses and lots of other stuff. So. Just seems like if you had a really specific reason to do it it seems like awesome but it seems like a heavy investment to clean up all the cultivars that you want to use to begin with even if you're starting from seed a lot of cultivars have a lot of junk in them that you have to clean up before you can even you, know, you have to clean them up six to ten times we've had a couple of other people on the show talk about this uh, um uh kevin jodry talked about it um i think kevin mckernan talked about it um Trying to remember who else talked about it when they were on the show. Uh, Alan talked about it as well. Uh, so um, uh, from uh, uh, PFA, so and, and Brokashi. So you know, this is this is the kind of stuff that um, just it, it's really cool for sure. But you need to have really clean lines, and it generally takes you know quite a bit of money to clean those up before you can actually you know work with them. You know, generally ten grand or more to to clean up most of these cultivars to the point where you can heavily heavily use them in tissue culture with predictability that's a good point i kind of just yeah i was consulting on a, a major grow the op that was trying to build up in british columbia as a matter of fact and i kind of fell out of it for two reasons he did he he started out wanting wanting to use seeds for everything and he wouldn't it wouldn't let me convince him that you need to get good cultivars and then take clones for your giant grow uh and he then all of a sudden he wanted to use tissue culture and then i found out that i'm an american so i couldn't work on the farm anyway so i got out but otherwise i may be a little more well versed in tissue culture but i i still like I, i'm still I, i'm at the age where i'm still a little old school i like a lot of the new stuff but i still like the old stuff and I think that's why I got the love with natural farming too, because it's old, old, old stuff. And 
and I like to I like to make things myself and and I'm and I'm one of those people that I'm trying to prepare for when the lights go out. You know, when the lights go out, I'll still be able to feed myself and grow pot with, without electricity. So, you know, even though we have wind power and solar power, you know, that's the way I look at things. And and I'm not sure how you'd be running a tissue culture if the if the grid goes down. You know. Yeah. Sorry, just some goofy shit. Yeah, tell us more about it, though. Uh, tissue culture for autos. Sorry, say that again, Steve. Oh, tell us more about the tissue culture for autos. Well, I'm not exactly sure. This isn't my specialty. This is just information that's been passed down to me. But we're on a on a phone call next week. Some people that are doing this, and they claim that, uh, like I say, they can actually take a a piece of plant material. Uh, even at the end of the cycle so we can go through run out uh, run out a whole bunch sift through them find your keeper and actually just take a piece of that plant material put it back to the tissue culture and apparently it resets the clock i i was uh i was a little bit doubtful of that but uh, it sounds like it's actually happening so this way they can uh reproduce a, an indefinite number of the same cultivar just like we would with the normal cloning process uh, and then start it fresh again and some of the claims have been that it would actually be less expensive because of the, you know, the way they go about doing that. I, again, it's a new thing. So, uh, you know, I can't wait to hear what you find out with your phone call. And I want to throw something out there before we get rushed or something at the end of the show. Um, if you're into like the auto flowers and you're into Jeff Lowenfels, you know, when Steve sends out links every week, you're always welcome to pop back in and be part of the show and hang out too. Uh, right on. I'd love you know, that. So, if if the, if there's a we got the maximum of ten people that can join. So if you see that thing come up where Jeff Lowenfeld is going to be on the show, you can go to your email and pop it or wherever you get your link from, and you could pop in and and be part of the discussion. Yeah, that'd be great. Jeff Lowenfeld is another one of my heroes, so so I'd be honored. So I tell you, we have. Did anybody follow up with any other questions in chat? Sure. So it, it takes a long time to grow a plant from a stem cell, right? It does, yeah. Like how long, do you know? Like I'm sure it varies, but I'm just curious. No, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. We're just starting to play with it ourselves. Like, you know, we're thinking four to six weeks before we're getting to the point we can start hardying it off. But uh, that's, just, that's just our own experience and very limited experience. So I probably shouldn't even comment to that. Hey, no big. It's all right. I have no clue. I just, I was just curious since we were on the subject. Gonna have to check it out. <laughs> yeah, cool. Alrighty. Um, uh, what's up with you and your garden, Tara, this week? Oh, I was just out uh, doing chopping and dropping. Is that what you call it? When you cut everything down around it and try and clear it all out? Yeah, I'm trying to learn how to do all that. Um, and uh yeah just clearing weeds out and trying to clean stuff up that's all i really got oh i got roots on the uh variegated plant that i uh, took from josh <laughs> and uh so i have roots on on one of them so i don't know we'll see and with what else um the mullen is huge out behind my house i've got to take some pictures like it is like my husband says it's like a mullen jungle back there and yarrow is growing crazy everywhere. It's, it's 
because I we don't really don't water back behind there, and I've decided to water that whole area because I want to have a, a, a goose pen up there for all my geese and my three geese. And uh, so it's just a jungle. Like the mullen is just crazy wild. <laughs> awesome. I hear that's good for a silica too on the FPJs. I would steer clear of mullen and taro as they're very antimicrobial. So okay, so that is that's like some people are saying yes and some people are no. So I'm hearing both. Well, I can make an antibiotic out of it, so I'm not going to use it for probiotic gardening. It seems a little goofy to me. Uh, I would comfrey. comfrey would be a much better replacement. Um, well, I don't have that growing out there, darn it. <laughs> comfrey is one, man. Comfrey will take off just like the bullet does. You get that started, and it'll race through. Oh, really? Okay. I'll have to get some comfrey then. I don't have comfrey. I think there's just so many great cultivars that were already sold on, like the horsetail and the singing nettles and the dandelion and even thistle. Thistle is great to be used for fermented plant juice too. Oh. So if you so if you're so if you're a devil worshiper and your yard is full of thistle, like you know, all, you know everybody, you know, claims that'll happen to you if you're if you know. Well, I'm just I don't know why I'm going off on the thinner thing tonight, but uh, you, you know, know, you don't want thistle. Thistle that is uh, russet mites are attracted to thistle. Stay away from thistle. I cleaned it all, oh. but I did. I did get in a fight with an, a stinging nettle tonight, right there. You can see kind of like a spot. And then up here, this looks amazing better. I can't believe it I actually fell on the thing while I was trimming it. And um, I came in, I rushed in right away, put cold water on it. And then I put this cannabis cream on that I made. This is like all of my, um, my squished rosin chips that I did. And I put them in a crock pot and cooked it like for three days with uh, coconut oil. And I slapped that right on there, and it took the welt and the stinging right away. I can't believe how good it feels. I'm so shocked. Cool. The stinging nettle welts me up. I am, like, huge swollen normally. That's interesting. I didn't know that happened. And I've got, I noticed mine starting to bud or flower or whatever, because it just looked like a bunch of little wires sticking up. And I noticed today that it's got a bunch of tiny little foliage on it. But with my eyes, it was a little harder. Well, okay, so they seem to be... When they are seeded, they seem to be super more potent than than when they are before they bud. Because when I've touched them before and I've ran into them and they normally aren't this bad. And today today was like really bad. So I don't know if that's true. Maybe more terpene, whatever. I don't even know what the thing is that what it is that stings you. I don't might, know. might simply be an allergy. Could be. But it works quickly. What, uh, what's, up what's up with you and your garden there, Andy? Who are you talking to me? There's something, there's something going on with the audio right now. Oh, there we go. What's up with you, Roger? Oh, well, it's funny. I was looking at my sting nettles today, and they're, they're doing really well. My horsetail's going crazy. Um, I, I got to repot a bunch of vegetables and stuff like that. I'm I still I'm lo I'm in love with my uh, dwarf banana plants. They're they're just they're just blowing me away with what they're doing. But um, I, I I'm feeling really good because I was late to the show tonight, and you know I generally I never miss a show, but I at nine o'clock 
I've been trying to get somebody to come out here and help me because I'm deathly allergic to hornets and stuff. And I got a lot of growth back in the back, you know, and at this time of year in the swamp, you know, where I've got tons of green plants, like, like Tara's jungle that are all kinds of weeds and stuff. And there's all kinds of hornets and bees. Not all of them will kill me, but some of them will. And I'm trying to take back over the back area and clean up my greenhouse, but I can't do it without, since I'm alone, I can't do it without, um having assistance or a helper or somebody helping me do it to watch my back in case i do get stung we can get to the hospital in time um so i got so i got i actually had a friend of mine that's given me a ride a couple times to the store call me and tell me today that her son and his his wife or what you know and their baby are being run off there where they live because of a confrontation with the landlord and uh and they want to park a camper over on my on my land, and uh, and he'd help me out anyway. And he's self-employed, you know, um, and he does contracting and stuff. And and so I think I'm really happy. That's why I was late. I'm super happy. I truly believe I found an honorable young man with a with a young baby, and and a and a wife that want to come out here and have a place to stay and get on their feet. And in turn, they're going to help me turn my farm around. And to give me that labor and I need, you know what I need more than labor. I just need somebody to watch my ass, you know, cause I don't want to, I don't, I almost died from a hornet a long time ago. And I mean, I was just like seconds from death. I really don't want to experience that again. So I'm very happy. Maybe you should have an EpiPen. Well, I do have EpiPens, but that doesn't keep you alive necessarily. You still have to go to the hospital. If you can't drive, it's well, a long yeah. way to the hospital. Yeah, that's true. You got to get your, you got to get your steroid injection. And, and it's funny when they gave me the epi, they gave me immediate because that's what opens up your throat. Because when you get uh, going to anaphylactic shock, it feels like, you know, those weed things you see on TV at night where they got the curled claws on the bottom and the handles like handlebars and they stick them in the ground on the weed and they twist it and rip the weed out. Well, anaphylactic shock feels like somebody pierced your chest with one of those and start twisting on it. And then your throat starts closing up where you can't breathe. And so you got this real, you know, you know you're in trouble because your your chest is tightening up and it's just painful like a heart attack. And then your throat's tightening up. And at some point you can't breathe anymore. So so it's just the fact that, you know, so yes, I, I know all about the EpiPens and Benadryl, but here's the interesting thing. I've still not gotten anybody to give me a reason for this. They didn't give me the Benadryl shot till they got me in the, ambulance and i'm not sure if that's because maybe you could be allergic to benadryl or what but they gave me that epinephrine and they hooked me up to an iv and they injected me with some steroids but then they never gave me the the benadryl shot that which was 25 milligrams if i recall uh, until they actually had me on the ambulance and then of course i went down and sat in the emergency room for a few hours uh, you know they were wanted to see if i would um you know, um, go back into shock or whatever like that. And, um, but I'm just saying, you know, that's the reason why. So I'm super happy. Um, if, if he shows up tomorrow for work, I'm going to be as happy as I've been in three or about five years, you know, having somebody to come out here. And first thing we're going to do is, uh, I'm actually going to put some of my farming aside. And the first thing we're going to do is go clear a space between the well and the electrical box for him to put his camper you know, and have a place to, you know, just to be on the, on the land. And I'm going to take a chance, you know, cause I'm not one of those kind of people that really want people to come out and be on my land. But he's, I know his mom, his mom's a hardworking woman and she's got a master's in um, psychology, 
you know, and she works, you know, she, she's a real, really nice person. And she asked me to help out her son. And he came over immediately as soon as I called him. And once he realized I called him, that's why I was late anyway. So I apologize for being late to the show for all you people out there that, that love me so much, you know, but uh, the thing is, is I got, I was out there talking with a fella that's going to help me out. And I might even have some cool stuff to tell you about my farm here in the near future. But, right. yeah, awesome. Everything's going great. So we've just been um, prepping out here for the outdoor, trying to get that all in. We have about a little over a half acre. We've got about nine, 800 plants we're going to be putting it in. So we were just mowing everything down today, getting everything prepped, getting all. We're going to end up putting everything up on pallets and, and bags because there was some stuff sprayed in January and make sure we wait our 180 days before we even consider putting anything in the ground so um we're going to go ahead and put them up in 100 gallon pots and you know do some companion planting for this year and then we're going to switch everything over to hugel beds in the fall once the once the plants come down over the winter we're going to build up hugels all winter time that's going to them inoculated so awesome and that's what i'm also doing we're build we'll be doing a, I'm, I'm i'm trying to get my hugel bed finished so I'm going to be working. When, since I have help, I'll be able to do that, Steve. I'll be able to drag a whole bunch of wood out of the back part, the back part of the property that's been laying there after hurricanes. It's all dry. It should make an awesome hugel bed. So, yeah. And then we've been uh, just trying to get everything else. We had to move some buildings around because of some issues we found underground. Uh, when we actually went to do a dig, some foundations. There are some things that were going to make it a lot harder. So we decided to shift some stuff around a couple of feet to make things easier. And uh, yeah, so we got that all going. Um, we know what our floor, all of our floor plans are. Um, so just kind of getting everything uh, you know, finalized with the build and getting everything ordered. So making sure we got the last of our plants all ready to go. So we'll see. Uh, yeah, so it'll be a lot of fun, and uh, we'll have a lot more content in the next. You know, we'll have, uh, next week we'll have all the outdoor plants going out. We'll have a lot of outdoor content. And then uh, probably two to four weeks after that, we'll have the indoor stuff starting to go up. Um, you know, the nursery might even be ready here in the next two weeks. So, um, you know, everything's kind of really going quickly now that we got most of the gear there. It's just kind of as fast as we can put it together. It's a lot of fun. Right on. Exciting times. Isn't it uh, funny? You make a plan and you just, then you start to dig and then you find out. <laughs> You can't dig there, or <laughs> that's weird. When you dig in, you find a spring that you didn't know was there. So you never know what environment you're digging. So we had to change some of our design, but it worked out just fine, and no big deal. So yeah. All righty. Well, um, why don't you tell everybody how to find you there, Che? Uh, yeah, just like you say, Rosebud Cannabis Farms. Uh, we're on all the social media platforms and the website. And then uh, you can get me on Instagram. You can follow what we're up to in our, our personal production license under Che Grown, C-H-E-G-R-O-W-N. You'll, uh, you'll recognize the beard. Awesome. And uh, what about you, Roger? You can find me at ilovegrowingmarijuana.com, which is my home base. And I opened up a couple accounts on Instagram and Facebook under Roger Latewood. And what about you, Tara? Tara Lee live on YouTube and Tara Lee live on Instagram. And I might be having an interview come up this weekend. Uh, some people contacted me and said they wanted to get some information out. So stay tuned. I don't know yet. <laughs> I, uh, speaking of which, I did a, I forgot to mention too, um, shout out to Scotty and the Do Grow Show. Um, that was just over on their uh, 
their show today, record doing some recording. Um, I I don't know any idea when that's going to actually be aired, but uh, we recorded a really awesome episode today and talked about Oklahoma and all the different crazy stuff going on. So um, be sure to check that out. Awesome. uh, That's cool, Steve. Yeah. You can find me on Phone Ponics on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, all the different places. Um, And, uh, yeah, and uh, we'll catch you guys again next week. Um, So Tuesday we're going to do another really awesome, cool powwow episode. We're going to have Sun Grown Mids. We're going to have Dale Hunt. We're going to have Beth Schechter. Um, and we're going to have a couple of other people. We're going to talk about, okay, well, everybody knows about all the bullshit that happened with Phylos. Like, what has happened in the last few months to move things in the right direction? And, and you know, what are some of the, the things that grow? What has happened, uh, you know, post-Phylos fuckery uh, in terms of, um, you know, protecting breeders and, and, and how things have changed? So um, we were hoping to get Kevin McKernan on to join us for that, too, but he's going to be in Italy and going to be 3 30 in the morning when we start the episode so he's not going to be able to join us but uh you we'll said people you said beth is going to be on tuesday yeah so beth from open cannabis project along right. with- that's what i wanted open cannabis project okay yeah, sun grown mids uh the guy who's put out a lot of of work into trying to to move this thing forward um it, it, you know the, those two people him and beth have put out the most amount of ideas or anybody else and beth has put a hell of a lot of work into trying to put something together that, that's you know tangible that people can use and and uh, dale's been a large part of that as well so it's going to be a, a really cool uh episode and one you're not going to want to miss so uh we'll see you guys on tuesday all right take care good night right, thanks, everybody. Thanks for having us